I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the Wonky Show. We've got some details of Labour's plans on lifelong learning, so we'll dig into that. Heppy has a brilliant new report out on residential higher education. Uh, We'll talk PTES, some smashing hidden history. Uh, We'll do some correlate, and we might even have a pick at the policy exchange report on academic freedom. It's all coming up. But the main objection I had to this was I read the press release to this report, which was only about five lines long, and managed to contain two factual inaccuracies. And if you can't even... (laughs) sort of confine yourself to the truth in in five lines Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into higher education policy, people and politics. I'm Jim Dickinson and here to sex up the dossier of HE policy. As usual, we have three world-class research-informed guests. In Birmingham, we have Philip Plowden, the Vice-Chancellor of Birmingham City University. Philip, your highlight of the week, please. Well, morning, Jim. Um, I guess uh, for me, it's not so much a highlight as the thing that's been dominating a lot of my attention this week, which has been the really worrying and worsening situation out in Hong Kong. And many of you listeners, our university Um, We have people out in Hong Kong, we have our students there, we have our colleagues at partner institutions, sometimes we have our our, our own colleagues from the universities, and what is going on up there at the moment, and the incredibly difficult situation uh, that the universities there are facing uh, has got to be kind of the top issue this week. And in Birmingham, we have Smita Jamdar, partner and head of education at law firm Shakespeare Martino. Smita, your highlight of the week, please. Well, I'm going to take um, two highlights, uh, both of which are uh, important for different reasons. First is two days at Guild HE uh, annual conference talking about what the future of HE looks like for small and specialist institutions. And the second is Anfield on Sunday afternoon where Liverpool beat Manchester City. How wonderful. And continuing our West Midlands theme in Coesley this week, we have Wonky's Associate Editor Sophia Ropex. Sophia, your highlight of the week, please. Hi, Jim. Um, I really enjoyed editing and publishing Sally Hancock and Paul Wakeling's piece uh, on Wonky on who's responsible for postgraduate access work. Um, Spoiler, no one, Um, which is a really good piece um, and a really important topic. Uh, I also really enjoyed writing about Labour's National Education Service plans. Smashing. So on that theme, we start this week with some election news. Labour has launched its plans for a national education service following the publication of the final report of its Lifelong Learning Commission. We've also had a skills wallet from the Lib Dems and a promise to rebuild England's FE colleges from the Conservatives. Sophia, you're probably one of the few people that have actually read the Lifelong Learning Commission's final report rather than just the press release. So lead us off. Um, Yeah, I I think it was a really interesting report. uh, and Angela Rayner and Jeremy Corbyn um, got into detail about about this National Education Service plan um, in their speeches the other day as well. Um, Rayner told uh, activists in Blackpool that adult, adult education had changed her life um, and talked about how lifelong learning um, had to be all about infrastructure funding, um, for example, around childcare and access to libraries, um, as well as course provision and funding. Um, uh, the um, the lifelong learning report um, in the report it says that a properly integrated uh, lifelong learning system won't be possible um, if education is boxed off um, from other parts of public life, which I thought was a really important important um, reminder um, that lifelong learning lifelong learning is is all about 
um, libraries and childcare and short start centres as well as as well as courses um, and access. It's all part of the same picture. Um, uh, Rainer and Corbyn, as part of the National Education Service, also promised to give every adult six years of free study at levels four to six uh, and bring back maintenance grants um, as well as EMA for sixth form students. Um, uh, and the Conservative Party announced plans to invest 1.8 billion in further education, uh, specifically in college buildings. Um, and earlier this week, the Lib Dems uh, promised to give every adult £10,000 over 30 years um, uh, as a skills wallet um, to spend on education and training. And Philip, this looks like good news. Um, yeah. Do you know what? I think for once it, it, it is. And the reason I think it is, is that you've got this unprecedented situation where, in a way, although the three, par- three major parties are talking about this in a different uh, language, all three of them are starting to focus in on the question of uh, how we deal with lifelong learning. Um, from my perspective, I always hate that term, lifelong learning. I think it's far better thought of as the flexible uh, pathways in education, the return of the part-time student, the return of the student who is in work and needs to pick up uh, new qualifications. So um, great to see that, whether that's a skills wallet or whether that's something else, we know that that is a group of students that universities, particularly universities like Birmingham City University, which have this kind of heritage around a, a deep engagement with, with industry and commerce that we've lost over the last 10 years. Anything that helps them get into it, the education they need has got to be worthwhile. I guess my major concern, though, uh, with all of this is how it's going to be funded, because there is just complete silence on the issue that the demographics for the 18-year-olds are changing. We're going to see a a huge increase in the number of 18-year-olds. What does participation look like for everyone, not just if you want lifelong learning, but the students who aspire to come to university in a more traditional way? And Smita, that's interesting, isn't it? Because buried in the Lifelong Learning Commission report are, you know, notions of more uh, central planning. And I guess, you know, the question is how many people get to go and how much will be spent on them? Um, Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's difficult to see how any of this is affordable without some sort of controls um, around numbers. I think the other area that really interests me is, of course, the planning focus is a massive departure from uh, where we currently are with the idea that there should be a market albeit a very constrained and interfered with market, um, that will fix all the problems that the country has in terms of innovation, suitability of courses. Now, if you move away from that, um, the market-led idea, to a planned system, I think that raises quite profound questions for things like institutional autonomy, um, which we would have to see how that's protected throughout this this change to a national education service. Great. Now, this week, the Institute for Student Employers published their manifesto for the election, so we thought we'd ask Chief Exec Stephen Isherwood to tell us more. Early talent, the education, recruitment and development of people at the start of their career journey is vitally important to the health of the UK economy. This is of even greater importance to the individuals we are looking to educate and develop. For too long, the UK has not been very good at transitioning students through education and into work, either through vocational or academic pathways. The skills gap has become a cliché and is often misunderstood and misreported, and too often either employers or educators are blamed. And too often, problems are created early in the cycle, i.e. lack of careers, education and skills development in schools, are left for universities and employers to fix. This is why, in our manifesto, we have called for six things. Firstly, a greater emphasis on employer and university collaboration in higher education. Uh, We're looking for a future government to commit to the maintenance and streamlining of the apprentice system, and also for degree apprenticeships to be protected. 
We're looking for more investment in improving the employment outcomes for disadvantaged students. Social mobility and diversity bring enormous economic benefits to the country and it is important that government supports businesses and educators to improve education and employment outcomes for all young people. We want the career strategy for schools and colleges to be refreshed and careers hubs extended across the country. It's essential that the UK builds a strong vocational system and we're looking for full parity of esteem for all education pathways. We also want migration policies to be developed that are designed to enable both our universities to be internationally competitive and for businesses to have access to high quality global talent. Our final ask is that for all the grand talk during the election cycle to turn into real sustained investment and action once the ballots have been counted. Now, next up, the Higher Education Policy Institute and University Partnerships Programme, UPP, have published a new report on the dominance of the residential model of student life in the UK. Somewhere to Live, Why British Students Study Away From Home and Why It Matters traces the history of young people leaving home to go to university. Philip, lead us off on this one. Yeah, well, um, on the one hand, a really fascinating report. I really enjoyed reading it. It taught me all sorts of stuff I didn't know. Um, Some of it I probably should have known. I mean, 80% of full-time students leave home to study. I wasn't aware that it was that dominant uh, a model. And certainly looking at the history of how that came to be, uh, an awful lot of stuff there I didn't know at all. I thought it it was fascinating. That said, it was a report that managed to irritate me hugely. And that's, I guess, because Birmingham City University is one of a number of universities where the dominant mode of, if you want, student residential experience is that our students commute. Somewhere between 65 and 72% of my students live in their own homes or in the family home and come into university on a daily basis. So to have a report which picks up on the rather loose language of an unsatisfactory previous report on commuter students saying they don't always have such a rounded and fulfilling experience. Well, really? Um, what's your starting point on this? And, you know, are you just always going from a deficit model in which the only true experience is the boarding school experience and anything that isn't the same as that is somehow lesser? You know, it's not to say that having commuter students isn't a challenge, but for a university which is predominantly commuter students, it requires us to rethink almost everything that we do and to put them, I think, in an entirely beneficial way at the heart of the institution. So if I sit down and talk to my commuter students, what is it they ask for. They don't ask particularly for the timetable, although that's really important to them. What they ask for is lockers because they haven't got anywhere to go during the day. They don't want to be carrying uh, tons of books and teaching materials around. They need some kind of base. So it, it was a fascinating report, but I thought a very flawed report. Smita, that's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the th- one of the things that comes out of the report is this sense of a binary. You know, you're either a commuter or you're a residential student. And I'm, I'm, is it as simple as that? I think so far it probably has been as simple as that. And I think the question that um, was certainly discussed when Heppy trailed this report at a session at the Conservative Party conference that I attended was whether that has to be the case. Because um, surely in terms of affordability uh, of uh, residential the, the residential model and also in terms of allowing more people to experience both models you'd want to try and work up something which let commuter students spend some time residentially and let residential students have the option of of commuting if that suddenly suited their their their, their lifestyles and especially if we go back to the first topic and we're looking at more of a concept of lifelong learning people will be different things at different points in their lives and 
can't we be a little bit more imaginative about that? Yeah, I think I think the report had some really sensible recommendations um, around encouraging universities to be more transparent about accommodation costs um, and and asking the government and accommodation providers to look at um, look at massive rent rent hikes over the last ten years. I think it's a big cultural kind of structural problem that that this is how we think about universities in this residential model, um, and it would involve massive university reform, but also a big cultural shift to to change it. And and part of that cultural shift would be thinking about um, depictions in in the media um, and and other other kind of cultural depictions of of universities, uh, and making sure that that we're not always portraying Oxbridge, we're not always portraying the residential university model in. Um, in articles and in in films and, and other other kind of cultural products. I guess the other thing I would say about this report is I think it's culturally quite blinkered because if I think about why so many of my students live at home and indeed then stay within Birmingham and the West Midlands after they've completed their studies, there are two things going on there. The, the, the first is that many of my students are coming from very deprived backgrounds and the additional cost of going to uh, a residential university would be a major barrier for them. It is a lot cheaper and easier for them to live at home. But the second thing is that culturally, and Birmingham is obviously a very, very diverse city, and within Birmingham City University, our, our kind of student body reflects that diversity. For many of my students, it wouldn't necessarily be culturally acceptable uh, for them to leave home at this age, uh, regardless of gender. It's, it's quite important for them that they stay at home, they have that family support. So uh, I, I, again, I found the HEPI report curiously blind to the experience of those universities and BCUs, by no means the only one, where the dominant mode of study is a commuter mode of study. And Smeeter, I'm really torn on this because you know, on the one hand, I, I, you know, I really appreciated, I think, the opportunity to kind of leave home and leave Walsall but um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that's a good idea and I, and I don't know I really don't know whether or not I could have turned out the way I am uh, if I'd have stayed. Jim that's a really incredibly deep question that's got so much going on there when you look at um, a lot of the areas that we've been talking about in different contexts for example through the Civic University Commission um, about left behind places uh, regional imbalance where keeping young people or attracting young people to live there is clearly vital to the lifeblood of that place. But at the same time, coming from a background where, you know, my family travels thousands and thousands of miles from home and have settled and hopefully we contribute to uh, a, a different country, I'm also very um, uh, taken with the need to make sure people do experience different parts of the country. And perhaps without wanting to sound like a sort of stuck record, is there nothing we can do which allows a balance between the two? You know, you spend some time in your home area studying at a local institution, but you have the opportunity if you want it to go and study somewhere else and, and see other parts of the country and hope, hopefully bring back new thinking when you, when you come home again. Um, I think we have to try and find some way of balancing those tensions. Now, every week we're delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With a particularly contemporary nugget this week, here's Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, on the hidden history of HE. Okay, so I think that one of the meta themes of Wonky is how we get universities and policy stuck together. Yeah, there are whole books published on this now, which are excellent. But the best way you could possibly manage this is for universities to have their own MPs. How much fun would that be? For ages, we had our own MPs. What happened was, beginning of um, James I's and VI's reign, um, when he came down from Scotland, he wanted to summon a new parliament. And the university thought this was a great 
way of having their own MP. So Oxford and Cambridge got themselves organised. Um, they had a discussion with uh, the King's ministers about what the best thing to do would be. So the King's ministers wrote back and said, look, on the whole, we'd be good if you didn't send the Vice-Chancellor. Send us two people. And they went up to the university's governing body to decide who the two members of Parliament for the two universities would be. And so over time, what happened was that they got coalesced so that people got to have a vote because they're democratic institutions. And so slowly this would become a way of getting to have MPs. And they were just normal MPs after a while. They weren't just representing the university. They just did normal things for the university. So they went through a long dis- line of distinguished people, but not a very distinguished electoral process because it was just down to the governing body. Everyone who had an MA could vote in it. Um, and therefore there was an awful lot of what you would have you know, effectively called um, vote rigging. Um, King sending delegates, the Chancellor of the University would nominate somebody and it was, you know, woe betide the university didn't send them back. So curiously enough, they had um, one of the university chancellors of Cambridge managed to get his nephew appointed as an MP. Uh, he hadn't actually been to Cambridge, so they had to quickly make him a member of Trinity College so that he could be the MP for Cambridge. Uh, and everything went off quite happily from there. So this continues. Um, uh, there's a mixture of very um, enterprising young men who get picked to do this and sometimes it's safe country gentlemen Uh, and this continues happily until you get to uh, the growth of new universities in the 19th century and so the University of London manages to persuade Parliament it should have an MP too Uh, and so off they go and they they set up a convocation to do that the Scots get university MPs as well um, and therefore there's a a big development of this work Come the First World War, electoral reform is on everyone's mind. And so there's a parliamentary commission, the Speaker's Commission, that sets out what we should do. And the great thing is that they decide to reform the university MPs, and they do two key things. Firstly, they let the combined universities, the new modern universities, have their own MP, and they let women vote in these elections and stand for them because this is the same uh, piece of legislation that lets women have the the vote. They have to have a special codicil to allow Oxford and Cambridge uh, graduates because the women aren't allowed to be graduates yet but they are allowed to stand in the election and and vote in the election. But in the parliamentary commission they thought that single transferable votes would be a good idea. So they actually had single transferable votes for MPs for the university constituencies. It was a postal vote. Uh, You got on the register. Um, You're allowed to be on the register of different universities, but you can only vote once in a university constituency. And it was good student union style single transferable votes. And for uh, the period between 1918 and 1948, we had single transferable vote, proportional representation in the UK Parliament, but only for these university constituencies. Now, some of the people were quite distinguished who did this. There was a particularly um, impressive woman who became uh, the MP for the combined universities, Eleanor Rathbone. She did all sorts of reforming things. uh, But on the whole, there was a mixture between party political people. They weren't too independent. So, come the Second World War, the Labour Party comes into power, uh, they start to implement another Speaker's Commission after that, and they decide to go completely against pluralism. So they drop it. And there's a great exchange in Parliament with Winston Churchill, sounding a bit like Boris Johnson, definitely laying into the Socialist Party for this terrible breach of all this historical precedent of how they'd had these wonderful people who'd been MPs uh, for the universities, uh, and it should continue. And Churchill swears that he will bring it back in uh, when he gets back into power. 
to the Labour Party get rid of it. In the 1950 election, there are no university MPs. But, strangely enough, it never gets back on the statute. We do not have university MPs. Plenty of people might think of themselves as a university MP representing a uh, university constituency. But we would have had a separate vote as graduates for our own MPs. Um, An opportunity that no doubt um, we could try and press for in the future. Get that policy decision back into our education. Let's have our own MPs. Now, Guild HE had its annual shindig this week. And as well as a minor fracas breaking out at its dinner, uh, you'll need to be a daily subscriber to know all about that. It was a chance to launch the Tertiary Education Sector's Climate Commission. Mark Leach caught up with Guild HE Chair and VC of Harper Adams University. David Llewellyn to find out. The Climate Commission for UK Higher and Further Education Leaders has been created to try to establish a higher education sector response to the climate emergency. So who's leading the commission? Well, the the commission is a joint initiative between the Association of Colleges, the Environmental Association of Universities and Colleges, Guild HE and Universities UK. And the aim of this is for each body to have appointed a commissioner supported by a council and experts in the field from across the university sector to try to think about the challenges that lie ahead and our response to them. Why do you think a cross-sector approach is important? Well, clearly, climate emergency and climate change are two of the greatest issues facing humankind. We have to try and think about ways in which we can join forces to deal with them, not just in terms of technical responses to the challenge, but also the education that we need to provide for future generations to think about what climate change means for the way in which we're going to have to deal with the economy and society in the future. And uh, can you tell me about your your approach to this issue at Harper Adams? Yes, we've taken a wide-ranging approach to this. Not only are we sourcing our food locally from our own university farm, uh, but we're also uh, investing heavily in new technologies to supply renewable energy to our campus. That's just one example where we've invested recently £4 million in a CHP system, a biomass system, photovoltaic cells, uh, located across all of our dairy units, roofs, to try to generate 75% of our electricity uh, and 80% of our heat from those resources. So we're reducing our reliance on uh, carbon through those systems, but we're also thinking about other ways in which we can build this into sustainability for farming in the future through the educational programs that we have. The National Farmers Union has set a massive target of reducing emissions from farming to net zero by 2040, and it's pretty clear that my university and others working in our field will have a critical role to play in thinking through the technologies and the adaptation that is necessary to try to get to that target. Next then, more than 70,000 postgraduates across 85 higher education institutions have responded this year to the Advanced HE Postgraduate Taught Experience Survey, or PTES. 82% of students say they were satisfied this year, although students from Asian mixed and other backgrounds were notably less happy. Smita, what did you find in here? Yeah, there were there were three themes, Jim, that I, I thought were quite interesting from this survey. And the first was in relation to the, the uh, percentage of students who'd considered leaving. And as the as the survey um, authors note, this is less than in both undergraduate and postgraduate research surveys, which is around one in four. Um, but I was just wondering if that's actually as comforting as it seems. The reason I think that is um, these students are people who've experienced taught HE before in the main and have made a conscious decision to stay on so surely we should perhaps be expecting far fewer of them to uh, want to leave and when you look into the survey um, the 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 pressure to think about leaving comes from uh, whether they're working for pay during the course I'm assuming that's as opposed to working as part of the course 
Um, and this made me think of an old, uh, I think, Oxbridge rule that used to say that postgraduate students had to show that they had the means to support themselves throughout their course without working because the courses were believed to be so challenging. Um, that r- rule was successfully challenged itself through the courts quite recently because it was obviously pretty restrictive and militated against widening access. But um, the tension between the sort of financial constraints that students are operating in and the demands of the course is maybe an area that institutions need to think about more. The second theme that emerged, which I think is worth bearing in mind, is particularly topical at the moment, is that strike action will potentially have a bigger impact on students on these types of courses and the satisfaction of those students um, because they're shorter courses and therefore the disruption of a strike that runs a few weeks will be more keenly felt. And again, institutional responses to strike action perhaps have to reflect that. So the third theme was uh, in relation to the interesting ethnicity-based responses you alluded to um, there, Jim. Black, white and Chinese students had strong satisfaction levels, whilst Asian, mixed and other ethnicities were less satisfied. And this actually raised for me the broader question of the diversity of diversity on our campuses and the very real challenge of tackling uh, specific issues that disadvantage subgroups within these broad categories. And again, I think that's something useful for institutions to reflect on. And Sophia, that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, lots of people are used to talking about the BME attainment gap. But uh, actually, when you look at a a range of issues uh, uh, from everything to participation in things to outcomes, there are actually all sorts of differentials amongst uh, ethnic groups. Yeah, I, I thought it was particularly interesting that um, that in Peter's uh, the, the survey report showed that black postgraduate taught students are more motivated to progress to a higher level qualification, um, in their words. I thought that was particularly interesting in the context of the recent Leading Roots report. Um, so Leading Roots is an initiative to support uh, black students into academia. Um, their report where they submitted a freedom of information request to um, UKRI and found out that only uh, 1.2% of um, UKRI funded PhDs over the last three years um, went to black or black mixed students. Um, so so I thought that was interesting in the context of PTES. Um, clearly black students are, are, are more motivated than white students um, according to their survey, but that's um, not necessarily translating into to PhD places. Philip, you run a university. Did you take part in PTES this year? Well, interestingly enough, this year, probably for the first time, we didn't. And the reason we didn't is obviously the regulator, the Office of Students, has wanted to pilot its own postgraduate survey. So we thought we might just as well uh, get ahead of the curve and engage with that. Um, It's clearly never good politics to disrespect your regulator uh, on such a well-listened-to podcast as this. So all I will say is it was a pilot, perhaps uh, we shouldn't be surprised that there was a huge amount of learning uh, that needed to take place coming out of that pilot. Apart from anything, uh, the PTES institutions have all got their results, whereas because the OFS model is reliant on matching up those results to the HESA data, I have no idea when we're going to get ours, but I would imagine it's another few months, which means that actually our ability to take that feedback and work with it to change programs for the better in real time seems to have got lost. So it hasn't been an altogether happy experience. That said, in my former institution, we did engage with PTES. But my my big issue is that while it is fascinating to see PTES at a national uh, level, at a local level, if you don't have a huge number of, of postgraduate students, actually the numbers concerned are sufficiently small 
that it's not really particularly statistically robust if you want to use it as an evidence base for driving change. So um, really interesting to hear what everyone said about PTOS, but for us, it probably hasn't been that important. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question, he's Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. Welcome to Yes, But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment with more reliable data than Sajid Javid. This week, we're looking at overseas flexible and distance learning, a huge growth area for many providers. But do we primarily find a large distance learning operation in providers that already teach a lot of UK students? Excluding two obvious outliers, the Open University and the University of London, does it correlate? I don't think it does correlate, no. Um, I can think of some universities that don't have many UK students, but um, do have big um, uh, distance learning programmes. Um, okay, I'm going to take my life in my hands on this one because it, it, it's difficult. I can just think of a number of, of UK institutions who have got very large UK intakes, but I'm not aware that they are particularly active in the international space. I can also think of some medium-sized institutions which have got huge numbers of online distance learning international students. So I'm going to say that, no, I don't think it does correlate. I think you've got uh, you've got 100% consensus here, Jim, because I don't think it correlates either. Um, I, I I think that uh, for the reasons others have already given, there's probably quite a few uh, medium-sized institutions that do some of this quite well uh, and and at length, and some of the larger ones may not do it so well. The answer is no. R squared is 0.03 for a p-value of 0.04, so there is absolutely no relationship at all. Some providers do punch above their weight. Harriet Watt and SOAS have distance learning student numbers equivalent to around a third of their UK student numbers. And most institutions do at least some transnational distance learning, although most have less than 500 students on such courses. Data is from HESA and is for all traditional HE providers in the UK. And where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, Policy Exchange published a report this week on academic freedom in the UK. It revealed the results of a poll which found that the majority of undergraduates oppose a speaking ban on Jacob Rees-Mogg, oppose formal punishments on culturally appropriative party attire, and agree with the University of Cambridge's decision to rescind Jordan Peterson's fellowship. Sophia, what did you make of all this? Um, yeah, th- this Policy Exchange report was was pretty weird. Um, it, it said it was about academic freedom, um, but it was really about freedom of speech. Uh, but then actually it was about how students feel about freedom of speech or about um, how freedom of speech is reported in the press. Um, so it was a, it was a pretty con- confusing report. Um, uh, the report recommended that universities appoint academic freedom champions um, who would report directly to vice chancellors. Um, it also suggested introducing an office for students um, uh, academic freedom champion both of which were, were recommendations that didn't seem to um, to be founded on great evidence, uh, especially in the context of the government's freedom of speech inquiry last year, which found that, um, that, and I quote, we did not find the wholesale censorship of debate in universities, which media coverage has suggested. Now, now, Philip, there are real tensions here, aren't there? To be honest, I don't think there are real tensions at all. I thought this was a terrible piece of work. <laughs> I actually looked to see who had written it because it seemed so almost willfully blind to the fact that 
we're not operating in a vacuum here. I mean, regardless of the inaccuracies that were contained within the report and the fact that the report seemed to start by saying, well, it's curiously difficult to get evidence and actually we haven't managed to find anything in particular, but then progress from that to make a whole series of incredibly wide-ranging um, recommendations to the sector. My major concern is there was no recognition at all of the statutory framework within which we already operate. There's no recognition of the Education Act duties that have been placed on universities for 20 years now. There's no recognition of the Human Rights Act and, and, and freedom of speech obligations uh, under that. And indeed, the fact that freedom of speech is not an absolute under Article 10 of the European Convention. So I thought it was a really disappointing piece of work. And the proposition that somehow this might have been used as, as, as part of anyone's uh, Queen's speech or manifesto, I found deeply, deeply dismaying because it just lacked any kind of rigour at all. Samita, what did, what, what did you make of the sort of, you know, legal aspects of the recommendations? Um, well, they, I was sort of extremely concerned by the specific legal proposals that they were putting forward, although I think the most chilling part of the report for me was the line which said that this was only the first part of further work that was going to be done by them in this area, so goodness knows what they're going to come out with uh, when they do that further work. But the two specific legal um proposals that they've made which were concerning to me was the first that was to extend the current duty which is on the governing bodies of institutions to ensure freedom of speech within the law for uh, members of um, the university and visiting speakers and extend that from a duty on the governing body to a duty on individual members of staff and students and I don't have any idea how they think that would be enforceable um, or indeed how it contributes to the sense of freedom that people might have if they are in fact being uh, obliged to uphold the free speech um, uh, of people who they regard as harassing them. Um, you know, that is something that should be done at an institutional level rather than on individuals. Um, the second part of their recommendations was, as far as I could tell, a proposal that you banned the right to protest on campus, which again did not strike me as a particular um, free approach to society uh, or indeed life on campus um, and would constitute the erosion very very large erosion into the rights that people already have so you would be actually taking rights away uh, from people to protest uh, in part from the European Convention of, uh, of Human Rights so those two didn't strike me as terribly uh, free but the main objection I had to this was I read the press release to this report which was only about five lines long and managed to contain two factual inaccuracies the first was that Jacob Rees-Mogg had been banned from speaking he had not the second being that Jermaine Greer had been banned from speaking and she had not and if you can't even <laughs> sort of confine yourself to the truth in, in five lines of text I'm not sure what what weight we should attach to the rest of your in speech marks research Close yeah i mean I, I i i'm just fed up of hearing about free speech and when the incidents that, that people talk about um aren't actually an infringement of free speech um i think it's definitely more interesting to, to think about who already has a platform um and who we can amplify yeah i guess uh, if, if if you don't mind it's, it's slightly indulgent but i wanted to make one one final point in relation to this and it kind of contrasts the slackness of this report that we've got with the excellent work done by people like jill lepore who's an, an american historian uh, and she, 
she said that all speech isn't equal, that some things are true, some things are not, and figuring out how to tell the difference is the work of the university, and that that rests on a commitment to freedom of inquiry, an unflinching search for truth, and the fearless unmasking of error. And I think if we're faced with a, a report on free speech or attitudes to free speech, it does no harm to go back to first principles and remind ourselves why this isn't some political football. It is deeply important to the core mission of every university. So that's about it for this week. To find out more about anything we've discussed today, you'll find links on the episode page at wonky.com where you can also leave your thoughts and comments. Don't forget you can subscribe to us automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. And if you think you've got what it takes to be a guest on the show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks again to our guests, Philip, Smita and Sophia. To everyone at Team Wonky for making the show happen. And of course, to you for listening. Until next week, stay wonky. Thank you.